Hebrews 11, we're going to continue on our study of Hebrews, and we're coming to this great faith chapter, and we're going to camp out here for a little while, and hopefully the Lord will help us to grow in faith, a specific kind of faith, an enduring faith. Hebrews 11, 1, we're going to look at the first two verses. Now hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And may the Lord grant that we would do the same. As we come to this uh, verse in Hebrews today, these two verses, I wanted to set it in its context because it's important that we understand that the writer here is giving us a definition of faith, but he's doing so uh, in context. He's not telling us everything there is to know about faith. He's telling us something uh, uh, that is specific to this scenario in which the people find themselves to whom the writer of Hebrews is communicating and encouraging in their faith. If you back up just a few verses to verse uh, 34 of chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers that, that they had compassion on those in prison. And he says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he's writing to Christians, these Christians who were living in the first century, and uh, he's reminding them that at one time in the not-so-distant past, that they were willing to suffer persecution for their faith. And they did so, he says, because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one, he says. In other words, they were so convinced of the promises of God that this world is not all there is. They believe that promise that through the work of Christ in them and in the world that they would be redeemed and live forever in a new heaven and new earth. And they believe that the sufferings they would meet by following Jesus in this present world paled in comparison to what Jesus had promised them. Therefore, they could let go of their property for the cause of Christ because they knew it was only temporary. And these things aren't lasting. There's something greater that they were hoping in and looking forward to. But now they were growing weary of the grind of the Christian life. They faced suffering and persecution and deprivation because of, of their trust in the Lord, because of their Christianity. And they were close to giving up they were losing their faith. Their faith was not enduring through the difficult circumstances they were experiencing. So the writer goes on to encourage them. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he assures them, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. See, so he reminds them 
that there are promises to be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. Throwing in the towel would mean forfeiting those promises. It would mean opting for the destruction of their souls. They must remember these things and continue to live by faith in Christ. You, as a Christian today, must also remember this and live by faith. If you are not a Christian today, I encourage you to consider Christ and His promises. Will you believe Him to the preserving of your souls? That's really the most important question that you could answer today. So he's talking here about an enduring faith. How can we have a faith that endures through trials, through difficulties, through temptations, through even persecution, through discouragement and weariness? How can we continue to be Christians when we see all that's going on around us and becoming so discouraged that we want to throw in the towel? Well, I want to mention two things today from the passage. I want to look at the object of faith, which is the most important thing that we can look at, the object of faith. And then I want to talk about the threat to faith that we find here in the passage. The object of faith. First of all, I want to make it clear that everyone has faith. We all, all human beings make faith commitments. When we lived in England, I would have uh, people say often, I admire people of faith. And, and it didn't matter what the faith was. They just admired people of faith. Religious people is what they meant. But I wanted to tell them, and maybe I did on some occasion, because it happened to me quite often. I wanted to tell them, well, you have faith as well. You are a person of faith. There are certain things that you believe and they influence the way that you live your life. Everyone makes those commitments. If you think about it, we can, we can uh, juxtapose those who are you know, evolutionists and those who are creationists. They both are faith positions. Either on the Christian side, you believe that God created everything out of nothing, you know, if you believe that there is a God and he spoke everything into existence and you believe that uh, he has a plan for this world, well, that affects the way that you look at the world, that affects the way that you live your life, that affects the things that you do with your life and the way that you view the entire creation that we have. We could, we could spend all day talking about that and and what that means just to believe that there is a God and he created everything. If you believe that matter is eternal, see, you can know, you can know uh, easier prove that matter is eternal because you can't go back into forever eternity and say, well, matter has always been there. And then all of a sudden, one day, it all exploded and, and here we are. We crawled up out of the mud and here's humans. You, you have to believe that. You have to make a belief statement, a, a faith commitment to believe that. Same as you would to believe that there is a God that created everything. We'll talk more about that as we 
get to verse 3 and 4. But you see, that affects the way that you view the world. If you believe that everything is an accident and that matter is eternal, then what difference does it make? This world is all you have. See, that makes a, a, an entire different lifestyle for you if that's your faith commitment. So everyone makes these faith commitments. And it doesn't matter what it is. There's faith required. You have to believe something that you can't prove, you can't see. That's what he's talking about here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The important thing is what is the object of your faith? What is the object? Is the object, is that which you are relying upon truly reliable? Now, we're obviously, as Christians, promoting that you should believe in God and believe God. And, and I want to make a distinction there between the two. The writer says that you've got to believe in God. In verse 6, he goes on to say, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You have to believe in God. Uh, but as well, you have to believe God. And there's a difference between the two. The demons believe in God, but they don't believe God. Yes, you have to believe that, that God exists, but there's a difference between believing that he exists and believing what he says and what he's doing in the world, what he's promised to those who would turn to Christ for salvation. See, that's believing God. It's not anti-intellectual. We have to understand, to have true faith, enduring faith, we have to understand who the object is. God is the object. And what has he promised? We have, to, we have to look at those truths. Are they plausible? We as Christians say, yes, absolutely they are. We have thought it through. We have seen the evidence. We have seen the facts. And we are believing we are making a commitment to it. That is what enduring faith is. Believing in God and believing God. We walk by faith, not by sight. That doesn't mean that we are blind and just taking a great leap. No, we've been told the truth and we have put our trust in it. We're living as if it is true. So the object is very important. It's not mindless, but looking at what God is saying, looking at what the historical record says about Christ, and making a commitment to that truth. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about faith, based on facts, verifiable facts in the case of Christ. Notice that it, is, that it is things we hope for and things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there is the element in faith, this is what makes it faith, that there is a future aspect to it, an unseen aspect to it, something that we haven't experienced yet, something that's promised for the future, something that we cannot see. That's why people say it's blind faith. It's not that we're blindly following because we're unintelligent and haven't thought it through, but it's because we're looking for something that we haven't seen yet, that we cannot see, 
things that are promised. We're trusting what God has said. We're trusting in his word. We believe that what he's, what he's said he's going to do, he's going to do. And we're living in accordance with that. And this affects our lives comprehensively. Why is our faith threatened? So we, we think about the object of faith. That's the most important thing. You can have the greatest faith in the world that a plane with no wings can take you across the Atlantic Ocean. But it's not going to. Because your faith, as great as it is, is in a bad object. And you can put your faith in a perfectly sound airplane with wings and, and, and uh, engines and, and everything a plane needs to fly and you can find yourself on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. You made a good choice. You put your faith in an object that is trustworthy. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people is, look, Christ is the only hope. Christ is the one in whom you should put your faith. And he spent ten chapters trying to prove to us how great Christ is. He's saying, put your faith in Christ. Don't turn away from him. Don't lose your faith in him. Keep him as the object of your faith. Don't turn to the law. But why do we, why do we fade? Why is it hard to have a faith that endures? Why do we lose our faith? Why do we turn away from God and turn to sin? And why, when it, why is it that when things get tough in the Christian life, we want to quit? It's because of our circumstances and the feelings that we get from the circumstances. The people in uh, the writer of Hebrews' day were going through difficult circumstances. They had been enduring, as we saw in chapter 10. You know, they had even let people you know, open themselves up to being plundered by those who opposed Christianity. And they did that willingly because they knew they had something greater. They trusted in God's promises. But it was getting harder and harder and harder. And they were being worn down and they... They didn't want to do this anymore. Have you ever felt that way? In your Christian life, you're just tired of it, weary of it. You look at the circumstances around you and you forget the promises that, that God has laid up. You forget what this world is all about and you look in the here and now at the circumstances and you think, I don't want that anymore. I don't, I don't want to continue on. My feelings are very difficult to deal with in the moment. I heard a great illustration about this, and maybe this will make it clearer. Uh, a man had a, a growth on his hip, uh, a tumor-like thing, and he was concerned about it. He went to the doctor, and the doctor tested it, and he said, oh, well, it's a benign uh, growth, but we need to remove it so it doesn't become cancerous. And it's, it's not a big deal. Uh, you know, you're going to come into the office. We'll do it with a local anesthetic. We'll cut it off and cut a couple of stitches in there and, you know, you'll recover and be fine. And you need to do this for your own health and good and, you know, it's, it's getting aggravated and, you know, all this will be for your benefit. And the man says, yes, I'm convinced. He makes the appointment and he shows up on the day to have the little minor procedure done and he walks into the room and he sees the needles and he sees the knife and he sees the table and there are straps on the table 
And all of a sudden he's questioning whether he really wants to go through with this or not. And his instinct is to run away. He's lost faith in the doctor and the doctor's advice and the doctor's skill. And he's going to run. And that's the same. That's a, a wonderful picture of, of the struggle of the Christian life. You know, we, we know the truth. We hear the truth. We have our hope bolstered. We're, we're saying yes to Christianity. And then it gets tough and difficult, to, difficult. And we see all the problems and difficulties of life. And we want to quit because of the circumstances and the feelings that we have. We have to remind ourselves of the promises of God's word. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, look, remember who Christ is and and what he's promised you. Keep at it. Don't give up. Don't let your faith waver because the circumstances are difficult. But sometimes when we're in the moment, what we want, the escape, is more real than the promises, right? Right? If the doctor tells you, you know, you, you can't eat certain things because of your heart. I'm getting to that age where the doctors are starting to tell me that. You know, you've sh- you got to watch your cholesterol so you can't eat shrimp. And you can't eat steak and you can't eat bacon. And you certainly can't eat steak wrapped in bacon or shrimp wrapped in bacon. But you go to the restaurant or you go to a cookout and they got bacon and steak and shrimp. And those things are very real. You, you, you smell the aromas and, and you know it's just going to be so tasty. And whatever the doctor said, you can't remember at that moment. It's the same is true in the Christian life. You know, we, we have promises that, as he says, are in the future and unseen. And those promises seem distant at the moment when we want to indulge our flesh or be lazy or just stay in bed and not go to church or not pick up our Bible and read or not share Christ with that person that we know we should share Christ with. We forget the promises and the here and now seems more real to us. We have to remind ourselves of promises. So as we go through the the difficult times, it's vitally important that we remember the object of our faith who God is, what Christ has promised to us, that he's going to be the one who returns, as he said in chapter 10. He's going to come back in a little while and not delay. And he's going to be a rewarder of those who seek him. I want to encourage you today. What is the object of your faith? Think of it like this. Two people get on an airplane. Well, first of all, they're told. They've never been on an airplane before. And they're told, this is an airplane, even though you've never seen one before, and it's going to take you to your destination. And the pilot has been trained, and the the plane has been checked out by all the mechanics, and and they they might even be told of Bernoulli's principle. Isn't that it, you Air Force guys? that makes the plane fly, the laws of physics that actually make the plane uh, wing work and lift the plane off the ground. And you could go into all the details in the world about that. And the one person says, yes, I'm convinced. I'm going to get in that plane and fly to my destination. The other person, not so sure, a little nervous, but says, I'm going to get on that plane 
as well. The first guy gets on and, you know, he's eating the peanuts and he's enjoying the, the mediocre in-flight meal. He's watching the movie and he's completely relaxed. The other guy is sweating, nervous. And he's got the sick bag in one hand and he's white-knuckling the, the armrest with the other hand. But you know what? It's not the, the quality of the faith. It's the object of the faith. They're both in the plane. And that plane's going to fly, reach the destination, land, and they're both going to get there. See, the object of your faith is what's most... What are you trusting in? I'm not saying have the greatest faith in the world. I'm just saying put your faith in the right place. Some people are not getting on that plane. There are people here today, and people you know, and people in the world who refuse to get on the plane... But they'll say, they, they think the plane's a pretty good idea, but I'm just going to grab hold of the wing and I'm going to ride it there. You know what's going to happen when you get to 30,000 feet and you're doing several hundred miles an hour in the air? You know, you're going to fly off and splat. You're not going to get to the destination. So if you're just going to church, you're taking part in some religious exercise, but you haven't really gotten in Christ then you're, you're not going to make it. That's not an enduring faith. That's not faith in the right thing. You're putting your faith in your ability to hold on to the wing, to hold on to religion. And then there are others who, who are not getting in the plane either. They're just flapping their arms. I'm going to get there on my own effort, my own way. And see, the object of their faith is bad because they're trusting in themselves. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get to heaven and God's going to say, well, you're a pretty good person and you come in. You're not going to make it there. You have to be in Christ. You've got to get in the plane. So I want to encourage you with that today. Don't flap your arms. Realize that you don't have wings. You can't do it. Don't just hang on to the outside of the plane. Get into Christ. Turn from sin. Turn to Him. Put your faith completely in that wonderful object that the writer of Hebrews has laid out for us. The one sent by God to be the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The, one, the only one who can save you. The one who holds you in his hands. The one who will not let you go. He's the only one you can rely upon. Make him the object of your faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would grant us faith. Most importantly, we pray that you would help us to put our faith in the right place, in the right object. Lord, may our confidence rest in you. May we have assurance and conviction of those things that, that you have said and promised. May we trust your word. May we trust your person, your character. May we be convinced of your great love for us, that, that you would not lead us astray. May we be convinced of your ability to save us and help us to see that we need to be saved. And Lord, when we go through difficulties and trials, we pray that we would, we would remember your promises, that we would remember your word, that we would remember all those people we read about in Scripture who, who endured in their faith. They weren't perfect. 
They fell short in many ways. They, but they relied upon your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that our hope in what you have promised would not flicker and wane, but may it be stirred up into a, a, a raging fire. And may that give us zeal for you and to walk in your ways and to bring you glory in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.